Good evening. Good evening. Good to have you all here. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Just a word about the flow. If you've been to these before, you know we'll hear from our speaker for about 45 or 50 minutes. Following that, we'll have an open mic question and answer uh, session, and you can ask questions at either of the floor mics, and we'll also have someone walking around with a mic. So be thinking about things you might want to ask him. Following that, there'll be a chance for you to purchase this book, The Dog Says How, in the narthex. Uh, this is actually the 40th Faith and Life lecture event, which is hard to believe. We're coming to the end of the eighth series of the, of the season, or eighth season of the series. If you've followed us, you know that we've cast a broad net in terms of topics. One of the topics, though, that's come up more than a few times is storytelling. We've had certain authors come, people talk about storytelling, and of course our guest tonight is a Twin Cities institution as a storyteller. You may know him from his national public radio commentaries or his books like The Dog Says How, or his storytelling stage shows. I always ask our speakers to tell me something that people may not know as I introduce them. He is coming out with a new children's book in October. So that's one thing you can look for. Big Little Brother? Little big, big Little Brother. Big Bert. Little Brother. So look for that. And also, uh, tonight is the opening night of Arsenic and Old Lace at the Guthrie. So we got a call from Joe Dowling a couple days ago who evidently it's a tradition, an opening night of arsenic and old lace for 12 men in overcoats? Trench coats. Trench coats to come out on stage following the show. So he will be one of those 12 men. He, he'll tell us about that next time we see him, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure he knows what he's going to do either. Um, the only final thing I'll say is he's a, a graduate of Gustavus Adolphus. I'm a graduate of St. Olaf. I think I'm going to refrain from any comments because I think I would be bested in a challenge of wits. Will you please help me welcome Kevin Clay? tonight, and he said, oh, and, you know, by the way, it's kind of important, are you Christian? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, I am. But that really launched me on, on a, quite a different talk than I was going to do. I usually get up and do my stories and my spiel and just whatever, you know, is in my bank of stories. But tonight, I really took that seriously, and I went, yeah, I am, and I get to talk about it. So I got really excited, so I'm going to tell some stories that, um, that I generally would never tell. In fact, a few of them that I've never told. And I, I went into my, my list of what I already had, just to check it out, and I ran into this, this list of what kids said, and, and like these fifth graders that they, they quizzed on religion in the fifth grade. And I love what they wrote in their responses. I'm going to read just a couple of them. One was, uh, Moses died before he ever reached Canada. David was a Hebrew king who fought the Finkelsteins. <laughs> Lot's wife was a pillar of salt during the day, but a ball of fire during the night. 
Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> and finally, when Mary heard she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. <laughs> All right, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's the list of fifth graders. And uh, I'll be working my way toward the fifth grade here as we go. Um, but I wanted to start out, there's two stories that I wanted to start out with. Uh, one is, when I was in Cape Clear Island, it's in the south of Ireland, years ago, I, I was on this island, and it's you, the typical Irish island. I mean, there's white houses with the thatched roofs and uh, the hedgerows going along. But what's different about Cape Clear is it's further enough south that it has palm trees. And all these birds are blown off their flyways from like Asia and Africa and uh, even North America. So you're walking along and you see parrots and crows and all these sparrows, all these different kinds of birds. And these birds stay there because usually they've been blown off their flyway. They're like, that's it, I'm not getting back out there. <laughs> and so there's all these birds. I meet this guy named Jerry in a pub and he, and he decides we should be friends. And he says, the next day he says, come on. We're gonna go get some ice cream from this goat herder. So we go to this goat herder's house. He makes homemade ice cream, but this guy is blind. And so sometimes you get a little rock in your ice cream cone. <laughs> and he makes chocolate and vanilla, and it is delicious. And we're sitting there, and outside the shack, we can hear this cacophony of birds. And I look over at Jerry, and he's got these brilliant eyes, and he's staring at me. And the goat herder's smiling, and I don't know why. And I can hear all these birds outside. And it reminds me of this guy uh, named John. He's a buddy of mine, and I'm thinking of him back in the States. John has perfect pitch. And I mean, you can be going down the road, and you'll hear a car horn honk, and he'll tell you what key it's in. <laughs> and John is also Christian. He's blind, schizophrenic, and gay. And he said, years ago, all these, was, he was so conflicted, he thought at times about committing suicide. And then he said, one day he was in a laundromat, and he heard all these laundry machines going all at once in this laundromat, and this cacophony was going. And all of a sudden, he started to hear patterns in the cacophony. And he heard these patterns, and he thought, if there are patterns here, there must be patterns in my life as well. And that day in the laundromat saved his life. I'm sitting there and I look at Jerry's brilliant eyes and the goat herder smiling and I think of John and I think, you know, sometimes God gives you a gift. Sometimes he gives you an answer before the question. The other story that I want to start out before I get into this is when I was a kid, I remember going to bed at night and I was really afraid because lights would, we lived on a busy road, and lights would shoot across our room, and I would get scared. My brother called in the birds. The birds are here. The birds are here. And they terrified us, and my mom would come in, and she'd say, Kevin, don't be afraid. It's only your imagination. Well, that made it way worse. Um, <laughs> and I could never get to sleep. I would stay up, and, and, and then I would lay there, and I would listen for things. And I remember I would hear my mom and dad's voices in the next room. And I could hear this muffled voice. I couldn't tell what they were saying. But every once in a while, I could hear my dad's muffled laughter. And I could tell they were probably just talking about the day. But that way of falling asleep to those muffled voices was the best way to fall asleep. It was, that was the first time I realized that there is solace in mystery. 
And so that's what I want to entitle this talk tonight, Finding Solace in the Mystery. Because we can take two courses in this life. You can either follow a light or find that solace in the mystery. Um, so I'm going to start out. We live in a complex time. I heard it phrased that we have stone-aged emotions, medieval morals, and a modern technology. I mean, it's no wonder we are a mess. For every problem, we have dozens of experts. For every problem science solves, there's 10 more that arise. In this chaos, we search for these patterns and we turn to our mythos. Mythos is the truth that lives within us, the truth within truths. The other truth is called logos. And another word for logos is the word. According to John the Apostle, in the beginning there was the word. And back when the Bible cover was made out of skin and the word floated on breath, on spirit, we told each other stories to explain these things that are larger than ourselves. Where do we come from before life? Where do we go after life? What's sacred in this world? What is funny in this world? And by asking these questions, even if we never find the answers, by their asking, we know we're not alone. And sometimes that is important as finding an answer, knowing that we belong, that we have families in this world. I remember I loved the begats when I was a kid going to church. I love when the, the way that the, our pastor would go from Adam all the way to Jesus. It was like this holy phone book. I mean, <laughs> going from the top to the bottom, all these different lives. And I would think of the begats in my life where my grandfather, and I would hope that something was passed down to me like my grandfather's humor or my mother's love or my dad's strength. And I would hope that these things were passed down to me as well. I, I remember... It was rare in our church that, that I would have something to grab onto. I grew up not far from here in Maple Grove, and our church was First Christian Church in Minneapolis. And so we would drive all the way into Minneapolis every Sunday to go to church. I mean, you didn't miss church for anything. Uh, if you had a broken leg to get out of church, it had better be compound. <laughs> And I remember my dad would drive us here every, every week. And, uh, and most of the weeks, we would sit in the back pew because we were always late. And my brother and my dad, we would sneak in with mom and my sister. And my brother and I would have our breath-holding competitions in the back of the church, I remember. Because Dr. Richardson would get up to do the sermon, and oh, you could see the whole place kind of settle back. And my dad would fall asleep. His baby blue eyes would roll up in his head. And, and uh, I remember his arm would slide down his, his, his leg and his watch would be exposed. And we would use that watch for our breath-holding competitions. And, um, we'd just seen this movie called Houdini starring Tony Curtis. And in this movie, he held his breath for three minutes. And I was thinking, three minutes, man, we can do this. We've been practicing our whole lives. So my dad nods off, there's that watch. So we start warming up our lungs, you know. <sighs> We look at the watch, one minute, no problem. Two minutes, a little bit more of a problem, it's still okay. At two and a half minutes, I hear my brother go, he's gonna lose it, he's gonna lose it. Sure enough, he lets the air out through his mouth. Always let the air out through your mouth, never through your nose. If you let it out through your nose, somebody hears it and says, who's having breath holding competitions? So he lets the air out through his mouth. Now it's up to me. I look at that watch, 255, 256, 257. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's a doxology. Everyone stands up. I stand up, but I haven't breathed for three minutes. And 
the church takes a huge spin over my head and then I am out cold. And in my delirium, I can hear people, he's had a vision, he's seen Jesus. And <laughs> everyone except for Dr. Richardson, not in my church, nobody sees Jesus in my church. And my dad scoops me up, runs me to the bathroom, checks my eyes and says, holding your breath again, huh? <laughs> How did he know? How did he always know? Sometimes, in fact, my dad would walk up behind me and thump me in the back of my head and say, that's for what I didn't see. <laughs> I remember the other sermon that caught me and has me to this day was when the pastor got up and said something I will never forget. He got up and he said that God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That struck me like nothing else. And I remember even after that, I was in a Sunday school class. We were making like a, a Plato representation of the Holy Land. And, <laughs> and we were working away on that. And, I, and God shall have no other God. There shall be no other gods before me. I raised my hand to the Sunday school teacher. I said, Mrs. Walker, Mrs. Walker, uh, can Jesus' dad beat up Buddha? And she said, well, yes, Kevin, Jesus' dad can beat up Buddha. Can Jesus' dad beat up Allah? Well, yes, Kevin, she said, Jesus' dad can beat up Allah. Can Jesus' dad beat up Odin? Well, no, that would be a tough fight, but yes. <laughs> yes, Jesus' dad can beat up Odin. And this sit in my mind that God had, was in charge of all these other things, all these other gods, all these other colors and love and hate and fear and song. And I thought, if God is in charge of all this, then we have a God that is complex, a God that can handle ambiguity. And this is a God for this day, because we do live in a world of ambiguity. Um, one of the things, as Americans, I don't know if you know this, but as Americans, we all share something. It's called the long gene. It's a genetic condition that America has more than anywhere else on the planet. And it's this genetic anomaly um, that is found mostly in people that have broken away from society, like explorers have it and adventurers, the whatever happened to's in their high school reunions, whose last words were, watch this, or what's this do? And my dad was definitely a member of that long gene club. He always had these experimental aircrafts, these airplanes. And he would come to Gustavus Adolphus College, and I'd be sitting in psychology class next to a guy, and dad would buzz the campus and with the prop back flaps up. And I'd turn to the kid next to me, I'd go, my dad's here, my dad's here. And after class, I would run to the airport, which was a mile from campus, and there dad would be with the prop still going around, and I'd get up on the wing, get in the plane, and we would fly down the Minnesota River Valley past the beautiful leaves changing in the fall. One time, I'm flying with dad. Okay, we hit a fog bank. I mean, you couldn't see anything. And I turned to my dad, and like usual, he's shelling peanuts, drinking hot coffee, unfolding a map, and tapping an instrument. And he turns to me and says, hey, Jeff, do me a favor and look out that window. See if you can spot the ground. <laughs> So I'm looking out the window when I hear my dad say, hey, Kev, it might not be down. <laughs> now, my dad was a person of the air, but he came from people of the earth. My grandparents were farmers, 
and I used to love visiting their farm. Uh, we had what was called unstructured time on that farm. <laughs> now they call it boredom, but <laughs> we were never bored, and I've never been bored even to this day. Okay, I've been to some plays where I wished I was somewhere else, and uh, I've been in some where I would have probably fallen asleep if I hadn't been the one talking, but, uh, but I've never been bored, and it's because of my grandma. Her name was Grace, and she was my dad's mom. And my other grandma was ample and smelled like cookie dough. Well, this one was frail and thin and smelled like frail and thin. And I remember Grandma Grace always had huge earlobes from wearing clip-on earrings her whole life. These huge earlobes that scared me in a National Geographic kind of way. And, but she came from that Germanic, she ran a tight ship. I mean, you didn't mess around with Grandma Grace. And I remember there was always a sense of fear surrounding Grandma Grace. The only time I ever saw her have fun was when she would get in her car and we would drive to Brookfield, Missouri, population 5,000, and we would park at angled parking on Main Street, and then Grandma would have a running commentary of the people that walked by. And, oh, we always parked in front of a drugstore. Because you can tell a lot about somebody by what they bring out of a drugstore. And we, I remember one time we were in front of the drugstore, Grandma and my brother and I, and, and uh, this woman walks by, and all of a sudden, her drawers fell from underneath her dress and onto the sidewalk. But with this beautiful kick, she kicked them in the air, and they did a one and a half flip and landed right in her purse. <laughs> Without missing a beat, my grandma said, I would have left him. <laughs> All of a sudden, she says, what's that yellow car doing there? Kevin, whose yellow car is that? I said, I don't know, grandma. That shouldn't be there. Now, when you live in a, a little town, and there's a yellow car, and you don't know who owns it, it is cause for concern. <laughs> And then she says, oh, look, that restaurant closed. I knew they would. They opened on the day of a funeral. Kevin, never open a restaurant on the day of a funeral. <laughs> yes, Grandma. All of a sudden, one of her friends comes by. She rolls down the window. Oh, hello, Charlene. Hello, Grace. What are you doing in town? Oh, it's my hair day. Oh, isn't that nice? Say, Grace, whose yellow car is that? I don't know. I don't know either. Well, all right, Grace. All right, Charlene. She's gone. <laughs> all of a sudden, my grandma says, don't look. I look, she says, that woman, she spits. And sure enough, this woman spit. Now, I considered myself a champion spitter, known on the playground for accuracy and distance. But this woman spit seemed to do her bidding in midair. It went around the cup and hit a fire hydrant. I look up, and she's staring right at me. I hear my grandma say, Kevin, never fall for a woman who spits. <laughs> but I'm thinking, Grandma, you are so too late on this one. <laughs> Grandma had one rule in the house, no dogs. And we'd say, but Grandma, it's a wiener dog. It'll die outside. She said, no, no dogs. And we said, please, you've got to let us have this dog inside. She said, OK, but one accident, and that's it. And it would have been, too. For some reason, that dog always stayed right next to my grandma. I thought it was like those fish on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom that stay near the sharks for self-preservation. <laughs> But one day, I was walking past the kitchen, and I looked inside, and there was my grandma 
feeding the dog some turkey. I told that to my brother. He said, yeah, he saw Grandma sneaking the dog food from underneath the table. And one by one, my whole family let out how they'd seen the, my grandma sneaking this dog treats. My grandma gave out her love like that turkey, a little bit at a time, and you had to look fast or you'd miss it. <laughs> but it was always there, never flagging, and never in doubt. She didn't want to live on that farm, no. She wanted to live in that city and go to that stinky beauty shop every day. But once a year on that farm, she would go into the dining room and then she would sit down at her piano, usually at Thanksgiving, and she would play the songs from the 20s and 30s, her high voice cracking. And when she'd start playing that piano, it sounded horribly out of tune until Grandma started to sing and then it all made sense. As the years progressed and her arthritis worsened, uh, my grandma still made it a point to go in there once a year, sit at that piano, and play. I learned from my grandma to always play through the pain, and there is beauty in the mundane. To me, she truly was grace. Now, I read recently about how the Irish view grace. They say, a good life has three things, patience, luck, and grace. But what I love is their view of grace. It's not a touch to the divine, no. Grace in their lives is the divine in the everyday. What we pick up that's a miracle in our everyday lives. There was another wonderful Irish story. Um, it was actually a prayer story. Um, it was set in St. Paul, but it was an Irish story about a man, he was looking for a parking place in St. Paul, and he couldn't find one. He was looking and looking and looking. Finally, he was so desperate, he prayed to God, God, please help me find a parking place. Seriously, I'll give up my philandering, my evil ways, my drinking, just help me find a parking place. All of a sudden, there was a parking place, and the man says, never mind, God, I found one. <laughs> I think we're always taking credit for God's work. I mean, and you see it every day in our lives. And what I love was in medieval times, they considered any kind of talent, anything you got that was like a gift from God, something that you owed the rest of the world, that since it was a gift, you were responsible for it. That's exactly how I think of my left arm. I, I, my parents always felt so bad about my left arm being shorter than the other one. I've only got four fingers on this side. And I didn't ever know how to tell them, this was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. This is why I'm a storyteller. I, I know to this day. Um, mostly because I learned the power of rhetoric as a child. Because people would come up and refer to my arm as uh, either crippled or withered or you poor thing or what happened. But by the words they chose, I could tell whether they blamed me, my parents, God, or themselves for my condition. <laughs> and with that information, I could get what I needed from them. <laughs> I remember, I, I, I want to tell you, I want to break out of what I was going to tell you, because I want to tell you a quick, what I tell junior high, when I travel and I talk to junior high kids, and, Nobody feels normal right, in there in junior high. Everybody feels like they're unique and different and the world's against them. And so when I tell them right away about my left arm, and I really want to tell this story really briefly. It's, a, it's um, the story I tell them about my left arm. See, I, I've always had one of these braces. 
And I tell him, I don't have a thumb on this side, so if you want to high five me, we can high four, and that's the best I can do. <laughs> I get all these high fours after the show then. Uh, but this brace slides on and off really easily. I've had it ever since I was three years old, and I really love it. It's great, oh, especially if you have a brother, Perry Thrust. Um, and, or garlic, I mean, I'm not afraid of anything. Seriously, if you don't already have one of these, you might want to think about investing in one. But I remember I was learning to ski with my brother, and we were at Lutzen Lodge up in northern Minnesota. And we were at the rope toe, which is this rope that you grab onto, and it basically just pulls you to the top of the hill. So we're at the rope toe, and there's this huge sign at the bottom of the hill that says, no long hats, long scarves, or woolly mittens. And we're standing there in our long hats, long scarves, woolly mittens, you know? <laughs> They don't mean us. And <laughs> I grab onto the rope toe, and when I get to the top, I found out why that sign was there. Because the rope twists as it goes up the hill. And if you're wearing woolly mittens, they actually become part of the rope toe. So I get to the top of the hill, and I go to let go, but I can't. My hands won't pull free. And I'm pulling and pulling. Finally, I got my right arm free, but my left arm wouldn't pull free. And it's starting to pick me up off the ground. I'm like, man, I got to do something here. So I let go of my brace, and my brace goes flying through the air. And the woman behind me sees it and says, oh my gosh, it's his arm. Boom. <laughs> She's down, people are piling into her. <laughs> so we did the rope toe trick the rest of the day. That's all we did. <laughs> now, that's my left arm. My right arm is quite a different story. My right arm happened nine years ago. I mean, I was born with my left arm this way, so I was, it, it was just who I was. I never even thought about it. But my right arm, nine years ago, I was in a motorcycle accident. And I have to tell you, there's a huge difference between being born with a disability and achieving one later in life. Um, I don't have the use of this right arm. And uh, back, okay, I'm gonna take this back. I wanna, my accident that I was in, okay, my brother and I were always going to the emergency room for something done in the name of science. And uh, I remember one time, mom and I pulled into the emergency room it was my turn to get stitched up. And we were running toward the door and we heard this honking horn. And we turned in, there was a van parked in the parking lot. The side door was open. There was a woman having a baby. And um, there was a doctor and a nurse attending her. But what had drawn our attention to the van was this honking horn. And we turned and there's two boys in the front seat. One honking the horn as fast as he can and the other dumping the contents of the glove compartment out the passenger side window. And I remember between pushes, the woman yelling, Riley, knock it off! <laughs> and I look over at my mom and she's staring at this van with her mouth hanging open and I'm thinking, see mom, you got normal sons, see? <laughs> um, but I remember as we sat there and, and we watched this happen. There was a time my brother was in getting stitched up, so I was in the emergency room. Uh, we were, I was reading Highlight Magazine. And yeah, with the timber toes and the bear family, the best was Goofus and Gallant. The two boys called Goofus and Gallant. Um, Goofus, one, uh, Gallant was good behavior, Goofus was bad behavior. And they were always written in the present tense. I remember Gallant cleans his room. Goofus sees if oily rags will burn in the window well. <laughs> Gallant eats his vegetables. Goofus wonders what's inside a squirrel. 
what I liked was there was no recourse to either behavior. They were simply different approaches to life. And, uh, I was drawn to Goofus. Um, and on 2011, uh, my Goofus got on his motorcycle, my Gallant put on his helmet, and when I got to the intersection of Lindale and Lake Street in South Minneapolis, a car pulled in front of me, and before I or Goofus or Gallant could touch the brakes, I crashed. Now, something happened that I still have not, I cannot successfully write down. It was that point where people talk about seeing a light. Well, I, I never did see a light, but I was headed for this amazing sense of peace. And I was given a choice at that moment to follow the peace or to come back to this plane of existence where it was made very clear there would be consequences. And I decided to return. And that has always bothered me. Why did I return? Why didn't I follow that peace? And then I remember being in Australia in 1987. It was so peaceful, so beautiful. I wanted to spend the rest of my life there, but my visa was running out. I knew I'd have to come back in three months. But that's when this woman named Ray said she would marry me so that I could stay there. I just met her that day. She said, yeah, I don't care. I'll marry you. <laughs> so I was going to marry Ray, but right before my visa ran out, right before our wedding, she said, I said, I can't go through with this, Ray. I got to get back to the United States. I got to get back to the belly of this beast to do something about the world that I live in. And that's when I found out I need tension in my life. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that wears socks with sandals because I know it takes people off. <laughs> so I did return, and at this time, people were praying for me. I have to tell you, the power of prayer is amazing uh, because I could feel it as I was coming out of my coma. At times, it was like being behind a power boat when all I had to do was just hang on. Well, I was also on morphine. Oh. <laughs> Morphine, you wonderful evil. It's great because it, there's no pain, but morphine takes over all reality. Uh, you cannot convince me that half my stay in that hospital was not on an Italian mountaintop, or there weren't two guys in the room spying on me dressed like televisions. Um, and I remember my right arm then was paralyzed after that. My left arm had to do everything. Before this, my left arm never did anything in my life, and now it has to do everything. So I've taken to calling my left arm Scarlet, as in Scarlet O'Hara, because before the accident, it was like, bring me a Coke with some chip dice. <laughs> but now it has to do everything, poor Scarlet. <laughs> when I get down or depressed, I just take a look at our wiener dogs, because you will never see a more can-do attitude in a more can't-do body than a wiener dog. <laughs> And I know it doesn't matter whether you're goofus or gallant, you just never know when something might happen. It's been said that God loves stories so much that he created people so there'd be an endless supply. <laughs> and I'm thankful I was given my chance to rework my ending. Now, when I came back as this different person, one thing I had was pain. Um, I found like in that parking lot, when we were looking at that van, the one thing that always took pain away was distraction. When I was out of my present state, when I was in some other world in my mind, like when I'm on stage, I'm never in pain. As soon as I walk off, the pain will return. But this idea of distraction, and, and, and I work with a theater company of performers with disabilities, and I look around and nobody's in pain when we're on stage, and it's this myriad of disabilities. And I remember one of the first days there, they said, 
we went around the room, and I was brand new to the theater company, and they said, if you could take a pill to take away your disability, would you take it away? I was the only one in the whole circle that said, yes, I would take that pill. On this day to day, I would not take that pill. Now I'm more the person I am than the one that I was, and I've come to like this person. But it's that idea of distraction, that idea of, of when we would perform. Um, I know, it's like the Greek god Hephaestus. Um, one of the main Greek gods, Hephaestus, as a child was thrown off Mount Olympus, and when he hit the ground, his legs shattered. And he dragged his broken form down into Hades, where he created a forge. And one of the first things he built for himself were mechanical legs. And then he started to build things for the gods, like Cupid's arrows and Apollo's chariot. Um, and, and he built these things for the gods. And through his art, Hephaestus literally took himself out of the underworld. He even married Aphrodite, the most beautiful of all the gods. Um, I think she married him because he had a job. But, <laughs> but Hephaestus was a god that I really took hold with early on in my life. Um, it was like, uh, there's a mirror story. It's, it's, it's about a couple that lived in the mountains years ago. And they, the husband went into town once a month for supplies. And while he was in town one time, he found a mirror. Okay, he'd never seen a mirror before in his life. And he looked in and thought it was a painting of his father. So he bought it and brought it home. And he put it under his bed for safekeeping. Well, his wife was cleaning the house a week later. And she looked in and looked in the mirror. Oh, a picture of a woman. Obviously, the woman her husband is having an affair with in town. This looks just like the kind of hussy he would fall for. <laughs> And a huge fight breaks out, a rolling pen's involved, until a neighbor comes over and says, no, 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 it's a looking glass, it's a mirror. Oh, now they're in love again. And she goes and gets a bag of ice for his head. But <laughs> I think we're a lot like that couple with the mirror. We don't believe what we see. No, we see what we believe. Perception is so important in our lives. Um, there's this, there was a time when I was with my grandmother at my sister's wedding. And when I think of perception, I think of the time I was dancing with my grandmother, and I'm a terrible dancer, and we were trying to dance, and I was stepping on her feet, and then I remembered something my grandpa taught me. He said, Kevin, if you're ever having trouble dancing, just cinch him in. So I cinched grandma in, and we started to dance, and all of a sudden we were dancing. For the first time in my life, I was dancing, and I thought, hey, I'm gonna catch her eye. Like, hey, grandma, we're really cutting a rug. But when I looked down, her eyes were closed, and she was smiling. And I don't know who she was dancing with, but it sure wasn't me. <laughs> perception. I think of perception when I think of faith. That, that ability to step out of where we are, that ability to let go of one hand in the dark and reach for another without even being there at the time. There's a wonderful poem by Herman Melville about, that I think makes me feel like when I'm living in a life of faith. And it's about the Catskill Eagle. And it goes like this. There is a Catskill Eagle in some souls that can alike dive down into the blackest gorges and soar out of them again and become invisible in the sunny spaces. And even if he forever flies within the gorge, that gorge is in the mountains so that even in his lowest swoop, the mountain eagle 
is still higher than other birds upon the plain, even though they soar. That so reminds me of living in a life of faith, that you soar, and even in your lowest point, you're still higher than everybody else. Um, there's a wonderful poem by Robert Bly, and I just heard him read this poem, and when he was done, he stopped, because everyone had gasped, and he said, did anyone understand that? <laughs> and we all went, no. And, and he said, I don't either. If someone understands that, can you please tell me? And I thought that was so wonderful, that, that, that thought that the poet didn't even understand it. But even in its reading, you can tell it's an understanding that's just beyond our grasp. But it is there. It's like those voices through the wall, those muffled voices that bring peace. It's that reach beyond our grasp. And that, to me, is faith. Um, we do have to remember, and this, is the, this dives into the heart of what I want to talk about. Um, we have to remember that with every rebirth, however, there's a death. And we start from that death. Something must be lost. This takes me to the section um, that's, a, that's difficult for me. Because it's not flattering. <laughs> and I, and it, 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 but it is funny. Um, <laughs> it starts when I, when, 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 when I got home. See, when you're in survival mode, and after the accident, while you're in survival mode, everything is fine. But when you get back to really living your life, that's when things get tough. That's when you really need your faith. Once you've exited survival mode and started entering, how am I, who is this person? I don't even know who this person is. I've got to figure out who this new person is. I, one of the things I had to figure out was how to write. I'm a writer. And now I, I didn't have the ability to write. So I got um, voice-activated software. And to do this, I would speak into a microphone, and it would actually write what I had to say. Uh, but it has to get to know your vocal nuances. This is when I figured out we have nuances in Minnesota. Um, <laughs> I remember when that movie Fargo came out, people kept calling the radio station going, hey, what's the deal? We don't sound like that. <laughs> but I'm speaking into the microphone, and it's writing down what I'm saying, when all of a sudden behind me, my dog and cat get in a fight. I was like, roo, roo, meow, meow, roo, roo, meow, meow. And the computer starts writing, how, how, why, why, how, how, why, why. <laughs> I thought, that explains a lot. <laughs> when it comes to the underworld, we're either dogs or we're cats. It's either how or why. To me, the underworld is more like a good haircut in that it probably falls between something I had or something I wanted. But um, <laughs> we just don't know. We don't know. I mean, uh, we do know there's the trip you plan, and then there's the trip you take. And you can pack just right, you can get out your maps, but sooner or later, you gotta give in to the journey. You gotta give in to the trip. I won't face it, the only place that looks like it's map is Nebraska. <laughs> I mean, when Dante went to the underworld, he called it dis, D-I-S, Latin for the underworld. The place of shadow and reflection. The place to round off the rough edges of torment and desire. Dante knew that you cannot cure a trauma, whether it's a broken limb, a heart, or a promise. The heart, especially, is an instrument once broken will never play the same. But although it can't be cured, it can be healed. 
And Dante knew this. He also knew that this was a necessary step to paradise. Um, it's also the prefix for words like disability, which doesn't mean unability. It means able through another way, able through the world of shadow and reflection, a foot in two worlds, this. Okay, I'm sitting in a coffee shop. Um, I'm carefully going through my bus change. This is a very strange looking ritual, but after this accident, I've got to be ready when the bus comes to spring into action. But as careful as I am, my quarter falls to the floor. Mm. Now, if I could take off my shoe and sock, I know I could get it. I mean, my feet have become downright prehensile over the last few months. Uh, not that I can deal around a blackjack, and I, I totally understand it if you don't want me to open your can of Sprite. <laughs> But I could get that quarter. I mean, what's the proper etiquette here? I feel my head getting hot and people around me are beautiful and healthy and smoking. <sighs> and I that am rudely stamped like Shakespeare's Richard III would say, unfinished, sent before my time into this world, scarce half made up, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I'm determined to prove a villain. In other words, sometimes you just lose it. <laughs> but not that day. I let the quarter go. I know that there is frustration in disability. Every day opens a new problem for me. Uh, packaging ugh, drives me crazy. Doorknobs. I'm pretty sure they're going to find my bones behind a door one day. <laughs> trying to work those doorknobs. Even my sense of humor. I, I mean, everything has changed because of this accident. Uh, no, no, okay, there is one. There's jokes I tell at home that my wife, Mary, says, never tell those in public, so here's one. Um, <laughs> it's, it's based on uh, those you might be a redneck if jokes, and this is you might have a disability if jokes, and one of them is you might have a disability if you've ever turned to your lover and said, ooh, that feels good. Is that your arm or mine? <laughs> okay, Mary might be right. Uh, <laughs> If there is one thing, if there's one thing you take from tonight, if there is one thing, please let it be this. If you ever do find yourself with a disability, suffering a trauma or a loss, please find an advocate, somebody that can work for you in times of need. This is where religion can really come in handy because I'm here to tell you, if you don't find a person, you will develop a persona, somebody you don't like very much, but will get the job. When I was a kid, it was the ugly duckling. I love the ugly duckling. This huge duck that stepped on all the other ducks until they find out, no, 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 he's really a beautiful swan. God, I liked it better when he thought he was a duck. This huge uber duck that was superior to all the other ducks. When they find out he's a, a swan, what does that do for me, a disabled kid? Hope a ship of aliens lands and goes, no, you're really one of us. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm stuck living with ducks. I mean, it always turned out for the guys, and in fairy tales especially, I remember it turned out bad for the disabled guys. Uh, like uh, Snow White, she trains in seven perfectly good one, little ones for one big one. And, <laughs> and things went on like this till I saw Richard III, and that changed my life. I saw it in a play, and here was this guy that really put it back. He really, as they say, stuck it to the man. And uh, he was a, a, a disabled guy. He was played by an able-bodied actor, though. That, really bothered me. Uh, it was like watching a white guy play Othello, and uh, 
And then he did this bit where he put a glove on with one hand that sent the audience into hysterics. And I thought, man, if this place saw me put my socks on, there wouldn't be a dry seat in the house. <laughs> but he did a good job for an able-bodied actor. He was ruthless and fun to watch. But I wanted my Richard III from Minnesota, so I call my Richard III Dick III. And uh, he comes from up north, and where uh, it's always winter on this continent. And so I, I fell in love with Richard, but the thing about Richard is he never found love, and love is imperative. You need love or you will not survive something like a loss or a trauma. Uh, my favorite ending is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and I love the end of that book because it takes place in a cemetery for people who've been executed for crimes. And in this deep charnel house, it's already much dilapidated. The beams are worm-eaten. The pillars are green with mold. And, and to this deep charnel house, where so many people have given up their lives, so many bones have rotted in company, this is all we've had to know of Quasimodo. About 18 months or two years after the termination of this story, among all those hideous carcasses, two skeletons were found, one which held the other in its embrace. Now one of those skeletons was that of a woman, and the other which held that one in its embrace was that of a man. But it was discovered his vertebrae were crooked, his head sat on one shoulder blade, and one leg was shorter than the other. But moreover, his neck was not broken at the nape. In other words, he had not been hanged. So he had come to this place and had died there. When they tried to separate him from the one he held in his embrace, he fell to dust. So there we have it. Beauty embraced by the grotesque, the grotesque hanging onto beauty, light surrounded by shadow, and our lives rounded by a little sleep. I'm learning a lot from this accident. This is a gift I know now, but it's not a gift I would have chosen for myself. Nothing's boring anymore. I get angry at heartless actions, and it takes very little to make me cry. But most of all, most of all, I do not want to become Richard III. But I can see how it happened. Back in the coffee shop, I take out another quarter, and I head to the bus stop. Uh, my final piece I want to do is on prayer. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Rabbi Heschel, who, and, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he said about prayer. He said, we don't pray to receive things. We pray to be worthy to receive things. And I love that idea. I love that idea of the, the, the prayer, the, the psalms, and the praise, and the rejoicing that goes along with prayer. And so often we, we forget, I forget about that. I forget that that is at the heart of prayer. And so this is the three phases of prayer. When I was a kid, the first phase was to get something. I remember I wanted that spider monkey in the back, of, or that squirrel monkey in the back of Spider-Man. It was a comic book, and this uh, squirrel monkey cost $9.99. And I wanted it so bad, but my dad wouldn't buy it for me. 
So I used to pray to God to ask Jesus to tell Santa to bring me that. Um, <laughs> when Christmas rolled back around, oh, I wanted that squirrel monkey so bad. Uh, later on, my prayers shifted. When I got to college, and if some of you knew me in college, I prayed to get out of things. Please get me out of this. Uh, I remember during one summer break, I was in Europe, and uh, uh, I was on a boat. I'd stowed away on this ship. I stowed away because I was on the island of Eos on the Mediterranean, and I wanted to get back to Athens. But while I was on Eos, I reached in my pocket and found I only had $20, and I still wanted to see Italy and Ireland. So I snuck on this boat, and I'm sitting next to this French guy, and I'm saying, hey, man, I got on here, nobody even looked. He said, well, they haven't even been around yet. And when they find you on this boat, they're going to take you below. He said, this happened to some buddies of mine, and they beat you with socks full of soap because it doesn't show the bruises. I said the typical thing, no, they won't. I'm an American. Oh, he said, they are going to love you. So sure enough, these guys come up, and they're, they're checking for tickets, and I don't have one. So I hide behind these barrel-looking depth charge things. Well, they see my shoes, and they blow a whistle. Now it's cat and mouse on top of the ship. I see this rope ladder hanging down the side of the ship. So I climb down, and I'm hanging over the water, looking for land. I think, if I see land anywhere, I'm just dropping in. I'm swimming for it. And while I'm hanging there, I pray to God. I pray, please, God, please get me out of this. Get me out of this, and I promise I'll never do anything that's stupid again as long as I live. And I'm in Texas. I'm wild Russian boar hunting. Now, they brought in wild Russian boar because the big game, they're like 600 pounds with these huge tusks. Oh, and you hunt them in the middle of the night because they eat meat at night, which is you. So when they come to eat you, that's when you shoot them. And I'm what's called the light man. I've got a flashlight. And when I see a wild Russian boar, I'm going to shine the light on the boar and then the guide, Mario, will shoot it. And I said, well, Mario, aren't they going to come for the guy with the light? He says, yeah. So <laughs> I decide right then and there, when I see a wild Russian boar, I'm shining the light on Mario. Ooh, there's a big one. So <laughs> we're standing there, and all of a sudden, a cow walks up. I go, Mario, look, a cow. He goes, my property, my cow. He takes out a six-shooter, blam, 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 blam. Misses all six shots. The cow walks away. I think, oh, great, I'm the light man. Pretty soon, Mario falls asleep on top of his rifle. I remember being out there in the middle of the outback of Texas, and here's Mario asleep on his rifle. I think, man, a wild Russian boar is going to come and eat me at any minute. So I, I start to pray to God, please, God, please, please get me out of this, and I promise I will never do anything this stupid again as long as I live. And I met Mardi Gras. <laughs> All right, you know where that one's headed. So I remember when my prayer shifted for the third time. I'm in the hospital. And it's a month after my accident. And 9-11 has just happened to, in, in New York. And uh, I'm watching on the news, watching this news about 9-11, and I watch the whole country go through post-traumatic stress along with me. We all go through the same symptoms, going from anger to denial to vengeance. And as I'm watching this happen over the course of the days, every day I would take the elevator down to the bottom floor and try and walk a half a block. That's all the further I could make it. And uh, one day, I get in the elevator, and there's this kid. He must be eight years old. And he's standing next to me. And he looks up at me, and he says, I hit my head on a fence post, and I just had to get eight stitches here. He points to the back of his head, and I go, oh, yeah? I had to get stitches from here to here, down my chest, down one arm, down one leg to the floor. The kid looks at me and says, yeah, but mine really hurt. <laughs> I 
I, yeah, there's no judging another man's pain. So <laughs> I get down to the bottom floor. I take my half-block walk. I come back, and there's my wife, Mary, and she says, come into the gift shop. I want to buy you something. She gets me this apple. She says, these are really good. you got to try this. So I, I get this apple, and, uh, and I said, Mary, I'm, I'm not hungry. I mean, I hadn't had an appetite in a month. I was thin as a rail. And she said, you got to eat something. You've got to try it. So I bit into this apple, and that was the day flavor returned. This flavor rushed into my mouth, this sweetness. And when the sweetness hit my mouth, I started to cry. Now, I had not cried in years. And as the tears came out, they flushed out all those antibiotics and toxins. And it started to burn my eyes. And between the burning in my eyes and the sweetness in my mouth, it was so good to be alive. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's when my prayers shifted to prayers of thanks. And I don't know whether good things started to happen to me because I was saying thank you or that I was being rewarded for saying thank you. I don't care because every day I found blessings in my curses. I mean, every day somebody helps me. And I tell you, people never look better than when they're helping somebody. And so some days I'll be at home. I'll be with Mary and we'll have a fire in the fireplace and the two dogs are there. Oh, we got a basset hound now to go with the wiener dog. And, uh, oh, and they're great. I, when we got him, he was like 10 weeks old, and the trainer dropped him off, and she said, okay, remember, when it comes to training a basset hound, they start out slow, and then they taper off. <laughs> yeah. So we got our basset hound there, and we're sitting there, and... Uh, I'll take just a moment to pray to God to ask Jesus to tell Santa, if there's one thing I want, it's to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Or a squirrel monkey. <laughs> uh, I have one, okay, I'm going to finish up with a poem. This poem's only a minute, and then, I'm, and then we can hang it up. But I want to thank you all so much for having me here. Um, you, you, you allowed me to dip into places I generally don't dare tread. So I want to thank you for that. Um, this poem I wrote um, is about healing, and it's called Tickled Pink, because my mom used to always say, when you're in health, you're in the pink. It meant your insides were in the pink. And so this poem is called Tickled Pink. Sometimes in our pink innocence, we find ourselves composting fallow, waiting to grow, or else we're rushing headlong like so many of our ancestors. But whether you're rushing headlong or fallow, it doesn't matter. One day, you will round a corner. You'll blink and something is gone. It's missing. A heart, a limb, a promise, a person. The innocence is gone. And now, as if channeled by a spectrum, you're on a new course. And some people don't recognize you. Some people will want the old you. And some people will cry that you have left it all. But what has happened has happened and cannot be undone. We pay for our laughter. We pay to weep. Knowledge is not cheap. To survive, we must return to our senses. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. We must let our spirit guide us our spirit that's found in breath. With every breath we inhale, we exhale. We inspire, we expire. Every breath holds a possibility of a laugh, a cry, a story, a song. Every conversation is an exchange of spirit. 
the words flowing bitter or sweet over the tongue. Every scar is a monument to a battle survived. Now, when you're born into trauma, you grow from it. But when you experience a trauma later in life, you grow toward it. A slow move to an embrace, an embrace that holds tight that beauty wrapped in the grotesque, an embrace that becomes a dance, a new dance, a dance of pink. Thank you. <laughs>
these events are really wonderful, important events for our, our community, and your present here, presence here reinforces that, and I encourage you to continue to come next year and tell other people about it. So thank you for being here. And then, I don't usually do this, but it is true tonight that Kevin is here thanks to one person, Norma Pearson, Yay. who's a member of St. Philip the Deacon. Norma, stand up. <laughs> Norma came to my office one day last spring sometime and she plopped his book down and she said you have, she actually forced me to read one of the pages in her presence <laughs> and she said you have to have it and so Norma, thank you. And in fact John and Norma picked him up and they're going to take him over to the Guthrie in a little bit so thanks for being chauffeurs tonight as well. So anyway, again, all those thanks um, and now uh, a little time for questions. We'll go for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. There are two mics uh, in the aisles, and Dave has a mic. Uh, if you want to ask Kevin anything, um, step up to a mic or, or flag down David. I'm not going to affirm or deny anything. <laughs> that whole uh, college records are sealed for a reason. storytelling or anything? Great, we covered it. We covered it. <laughs> Pardon? I hope to. This is a, um, I, I'm going to be doing a, a couple of graduations coming up, so I'll get to influence the youth of America. Uh, and the next one I'm, I'm doing at Century College on Wednesday, and um, and then yeah, and that one's on connections. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And then this summer I'll be performing again uh, at Open Eye Theater, and then I'll be doing my Christmas show at the Guthrie again, and then um, and then I just I just I'm, I figured out a deal with uh, Minnesota Public Radio. I'll be at the Fitzgerald a couple of times next year. Hi. Hi. Uh, you speak eloquently, thank you. Uh, I'm wondering about, um, you give such a beautiful story, and when you're in the midst of the shadow part mm -hmm. of your story, how do you get through that? What is the beginning of the light that you see? In, in the shadow part? That's a very good question. Um, I think one of the one of the things in working with storytelling, and one of, one of the things in teaching it, you have to tell folks, make sure it's time for the story to come up. And so when I tell stories, especially the most difficult ones, I'll tell them around people I love first, people that are encouraging and that I can get it out and whatever happens to me. And, and, and so that in the shadow stories especially, um, those are important to get out with people around me that I really love and trust when I first tell them, so they're around friends. And then as time goes on, I can, I can bring them out to, to people. Because I feel that a, a story needs to be universal enough that, that you can tell it. I, like I tell the people in class, I say, you don't want your audience worrying about you um, because then you might need more help than an audience can provide. <laughs> um, you you want to make sure that as difficult as it is, and these are difficult stories, 
that that you 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 are still the one in charge of the story. And and it is one of the stories that I tell about storytelling sometimes is the fact that the reason I tell stories is because it allows me to control something larger than myself. That when I can tell a story about it, it's my vernacular, it's in my way of thinking, and all of a sudden something that used to control me, I'm in charge of it. That's why I really recommend telling or hearing stories. Hearing stories, same thing. When I hear a story that touches my heart, it, it gives me power over something that used to control me. I just wanted to say thank you again for underscoring the, uh, the way the challenges in your life have uh, uh, made you who you are and, and improved your life. I mean, I'm certainly someone who also has moved towards believing that the, the trauma and the pain in my life um, it has a really a gift. Um, and uh, without it, I wouldn't be the person I am today, which is a more capable person. And I wanted to ask you a philosophical question. We talked a little bit about ambiguity, ambiguity before. Uh-huh. And I'm also um, discovering the, the contradictions in your stories. Um, uh-huh. one, one of them was, uh, in particular, was that, uh, that moment when you Flavor returned, you tasted the apple amidst the sting. And I'm wondering if um, you believe, as I'm th- beginning to believe, that um, the moments in our lives when we're, we're in our greatest grief or tragedy are often the opportunities and um, even the, the times when we experience the greatest joy uh, and find the uh, opportunities for the greatest grace. I, I would agree with that. I think that when we're the most challenged, I think we, a lot of times when you talk to people and you say, when, is the, when was the happiest time of your lives? A lot of people go back to times that were struggled, that, you know, when they were working their way through something or they were young and they were coming out, you know, and they were working their way up to the top or they were working through something. And it's, there's so many situations where you wouldn't go into them on purpose, but when you come out, that's... You, you, that's the way you learn. That's where wisdom isn't cheap. Or that's where you, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, who said that? They said, yeah, you never learn by success. And I think it's true because when you learn, you don't learn by success because it just happens and you can't really figure out how. But you do learn when something goes awry. It's like that story, uh, you can't write where there's palm trees. <laughs> I think that's why there's a lot of good writers in Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else? Is there a hand? Oh, there's there's one over there, yeah. Push the button and hold it down for a second, Dave. Is the red light going on? Hey, all right. I was just going to ask, given that you were just speaking about Minnesota authors, is there any particular author or authors that you draw inspiration from or that you like to read in in terms Mm -hmm. of in your shadow moments that kind of lift you up? 
I love Louise Erdrich, one of our hometown writers. I love Louise's work. Um, I, I, I do love the classics, and I, I still love dipping into Mark Twain. My favorite books tend to be ones that happened when the, written, the spoken word turned into the written word. Um, one of my favorite books is The Odyssey, because it was told for hundreds of years before it was written down. And you can really feel the oral narrative in the book. It, it's actually hard to read. I heard it told one night. It took the woman 10 hours. And she started as the sun was setting, and she told the whole Odyssey. And as uh, Odysseus was landing at Ithaca, the sun was coming up the next morning. And it was one of the most amazing, beautiful nights I've ever spent. And she told the entire story. And, and, and so those stories that were on the cusp the Bible is another prime example. I mean, it's just the, those those stories that were that as as when I was in the text trying to get out about when the uh, when the Bible cover was made of skin and the and the word floated on breath. It's those times. Uh, I really think that's a wonderful way to pass the word and the information. Um, and so, and even voices to this day that have like Flannery O'Connor. I love her. Like I said, I love Twain. I love those writers that have a voice in their writing. Pushkin and Ibsen. Isn't there another book that I'll be reading in my future with your offering? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a weird, it's an ethereal thing that happens when you find a musician. I work a lot with a woman named Simone Perrin, who's just, just this angel. Um, she's an outdoor angel, though. Her voice just breaks glass. It's a, um, but she's this amazing singer and this wonderful presence, and she has this spirit. And for some reason, we have a chemical, there's something chemical that happens on stage. And I don't even, I think that's the beauty of live theater as well, that cannot be matched. I mean, it's like, um, there's something visceral and chemical that happens in a live performance. And that same thing happens when you're working with somebody that you really click with. So when that happens, it's just gold and you hang on to that. Um, there's, a, there's several musicians in town that I just, uh, oh, if I'm gonna work with them, I know we're gonna have fun. Um, Dan Chenard is one that I love working with. And, and there, well, there's a, there's a host of them. But um, yeah, and, I, and I, do have, I do think that it is this visceral chemical thing. I agree. How do we inspire parents and grandparents to tell stories? Or just stories? I think, yeah, especially grandparents. I, I tell that when I talk to kids, I say, get it out of them. You got to get, get it out of them, um, out of your grandparents. Ask them what it was like when they were kids. Ask them what, and they just, kids want to know that so bad. They want to know what it was like. Um, one of the reasons, I, and I found this out later, that my work, a lot of kids listen to it, and I thought, but it's, isn't it way above their heads? And they, no, they love the subversion of it, the, the idea that their parents one day were subversive too and had these thoughts, and you know? Um, and one of my buddies does this whole library, getting kids to go to the library by telling them, there's a whole building full of things you're not supposed to know. Um, <laughs> 
and, and I think and with stories as well, I mean, kids just eat it up to know what it was like when you were their age. So yeah, if you ever get a chance to, to tell stories to your kids or, um, or even get stories out of them, there's this great Ojibwe saying that kids are closer, they're closer to God because they are, they're, they're newest from God. So to hear their stories is to hear somebody who's been more recently with God than we have. So I love hearing their stories. I was wondering if um, you do start a story, um, when you have a story, do you start telling it first or do you mm -hmm. write it first? Yeah. And then I, also, I, what, yeah. what's the diff, what, how is it different when you're telling a story rather than writing it? That's a wonderful question. Both, I, I, I've told my story, in fact, both of my books, I've told those stories for 15, 20 years before I ever wrote them down. So they're all created through the, I think that's why I'm drawn to the oral tradition and even in my reading. They're, the stories that I tell are, are meant to be told over and over, and, and that's how they, they, they arrived on the page. But there's a big difference in, I mean, when you tell a story and you say, I was this tall, you can't put that in a book, you know? Um, there's, there's so many things, facial, the speed of it, there's so many things that you can add when you're telling a story that you have to find a way to add. Like when I wrote my, my stories, the editor and I went back and forth, how do, I, how do I punch up the stories to get them to do what happens in, in an audience? So it's really different. One of my favorite stories is Mark Twain writes a story as he tells it, and then he, he writes it as he writes it. And it's almost two completely different stories. Um, and he says, I could never tell it. Like, I write it, people would be bored to death. And I can't tell it, like, you know, or write it like I tell it. They won't know what's going on. But it both starts the same way. He's on his uncle's farm, and there's this ram, this really mean ram. And he drops a dime. And it's like, does he pick it up or not? <laughs> and then it digresses. <laughs> I think, I think we're going to cut it off there. He does have to get to the Guthrie to put on this overcoat or something, um, but not, not for a while. So he's going to hang out, and you're welcome to chat with Kevin out in the narthex for as long as you'd like until we whisk him away. Uh, before we uh, get him out there, though, I want to present him with this plaque, which we give to each of our speakers. It's a piece of granite. It has the Faith in Life logo, and it says, with thanks to Kevin Kling for bringing faith to life. And we do thank you so oh, much. Thank you, Indeed. Jim. Thank you. Thank you.